Well, let's turn to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, a text that we've read several times throughout this uh, series. I'll read it again today because, because uh, these opening chapters of Genesis are foundational for our understanding of these issues regarding gender, biblical manhood, and womanhood. Just to give you an idea of what's coming ahead, uh, this is the second to last message in this uh, series, and so next week we will kind of tackle head-on uh, issues of gender confusion that exist in our, in our culture and what the Bible might have to say about that. And then uh, after that, it'll be after Thanksgiving and Advent will start and we will begin uh, together in the Gospel of Luke and uh, working through that. So uh, let's read. Um, our text kind of comes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the, the, the particular portions, but just going to read verses 26 through 31 of the first chapter as our uh, scripture reading. And then uh, we'll uh, see what we can mine from uh, the wonderful storehouse that God has given us of his word. Let's read God's holy word together. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every uh, thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Pray that God would bless his word, its reading, and now our study as we delve together into its riches. So this morning we aim to tackle a fairly tricky, complex subject, and that is how gender affects us in the workplace, in our culture. And... Um, because of that, we're going to be drawing on a lot of what we've already talked about in terms of biblical foundations in Genesis and reminding ourselves of those things, but thinking about them through the prism, through this lens of how this affects us, not just in the home with relationships of uh, husbands and wives and single people in the home, not just how it affects us in terms of uh, how we relate to one another in the life of the church, but then how it relates to us in our workplaces, the other main place that we go from week to week, whatever that place looks like. And uh, because of that, this is kind of going to be the most, I don't know, the least sermony, um, because there's not really a text I'm going to be expositing. I'm going to be pointing you to things in, in Genesis uh, and other places and Colossians that we read earlier. Uh, so this will be more of a, I don't know, uh, uh, almost feel like a lecture maybe. I hope not. Um, but we'll, we'll see what we can do with this. It is a subject, though, that, interestingly, we can't avoid, is it? God has made each of us male or female, and being 
a man or a woman, it will influence everything we do from how we engage in relationships to simply what jumps out at you when someone walks in the room. But another reason we can't avoid this subject is that what the Bible teaches about gender and what our culture teaches about gender, of course, are increasingly, seems like day to day, they're becoming more increasingly opposed to one another. And there are at least two errors that I really want us to avoid when we apply scriptural teaching uh, that the stuff that we've been talking about, about roles, responsibilities, and dignity, and worth, and all these things, two errors to avoid when applying that teaching on gender to things like the workplace and to our, our, our culture. The first error is that we would treat Scripture as simply silent on the subject, to take all of our cues from the culture, because unfortunately that's what a lot of Christians have done in the past, or maybe still doing. That the idea is, well, the Bible talks about our relationships maybe at the home and in the church and, and uh, our religious life. But, you know, people make this great divide between what is sacred and what is secular. What happens at church and maybe at home and what happens at their job or what happens uh, in the world. And, they, and, and neither the twain shall meet. Or, or if they meet, they, they only sort of glance at one another. And that there's the Venn diagram of, of where the Bible overlaps our cultural um, responsibilities is very, very small. I think that's a great error, and um, some people would feel it e- even inappropriate to raise questions of how gender should play out in the workplace. Uh, it isn't equality all about erasing the differences between men and women, they would say. But Scripture's teaching about gender is relevant in every area of our life, and that includes our jobs. And I think, actually, it becomes clarifying and, and liberating and life-giving when we understand it correctly. The second error that we want to avoid is to expect Scripture to give us only rules, to just kind of spell it out for us and that we would have a a chapter and verse to go to for every question we might have about how these things apply. No, there's a a great article that I think I put in your your notes uh, that you can look up. Um, It's called uh, The Music and Meaning of Male and Female by Alistair Roberts. If you just Google that, you'll, you'll find it. Or, or duck, duck, go that if you don't want the government to know what you're searching. Um, <coughs> but they, uh, that article, he has this uh, idea and he compares these things to music. And he would say that we need to tune our ears to the music of male and female differences as defined by Scripture. That we begin to hear that um, just the way we might get used to hearing a, a song. And we have it kind of in our ears that we should tune our ears to be able to understand and hear those differences as defined by the Bible and confirmed by our observations, and we're going to talk about both of that this morning, to observe the, the gender differences and to, again, as we've been saying in this series, to lean into them, not run away from them, so that we can live with the way that God has created us rather than against it. And above all, when we're talking about biblical application of things that, that aren't um, clear, that take some contextualization as we move from a first century culture to a modern culture, above all, we need to seek God's wisdom. Wisdom is living rightly in light of both God's commands and the way that God has created the world. Wisdom is living with the the grain of the universe that God has created. And so we want to address practical questions. How should being a man or woman or being a single uh, person or a married person influence the kinds of jobs we seek and the way we perform our jobs? But in answering those questions, we primarily want wisdom, not rules. Um, That's the difference between being sort of gospel-centered and wisdom-centered in Scripture as opposed to it's much easier just to want rules, right? Just to say, just tell me what to do. And uh, we were talking about that this morning, that, uh, of that desire. 
So let's first talk about some of our theological foundations. These are the, the things that we've been exploring almost every week in this course because they're so important. And our first foundation is to examine what the Scripture teaches about gender and work. And um, we don't have time to say what all the Bible says about it, but again, focusing on this portion of Scripture in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we've been looking at, we will see that Scripture gives men and women, again, complementary tasks in fulfilling the creation commands and mandates that God has given to all of humanity. And he does this by giving them these complementary roles. So again, in the verses that we just read, in verses 26 to 28, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And, and man there, the first man, it means more mankind, all of human beings. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God did. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves or creeps on the earth. So again, we see that God made all of humanity in his own image. And verse 27 highlights that both men and women are created in the image of God. Beings created in the image of God uh, makes all of humanity appointed to be sort of, sort of vice regents on the earth, um, mediating God's rule in creation in the context of having a covenant relationship with God himself on the one hand, and having a responsibility to the earth and to exercising dominion over the earth on the other. Verse 28 gives humanity a mandate as those rulers under God's ultimate authority. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, rule the world essentially under the rule of God. Procreate, reign, cultivate creation, and uh, do so so that God's image and glory spread to fill the earth. And this takes place in any number of ways. It takes place through, um, you know, I, I often bring up through our, you know, having pets, by the way we seek to tame animals, the way we seek to, you know, carve out homes from the wilderness, and uh, so on and so forth. So we have this, this mandate that we've been given as humanity. So our first biblical takeaway is that men and women are both made in God's image, and we are both commissioned to rule under uh, to rule the earth under the rule of God, right? That, that all of humanity has this kind of creation mandate, this creation call that we should live uh, up to. But there's also so the, the complementary truth that we need to consider, and that is that God has given men and women, though the same ultimate mandate, he has given each gender distinct and complementary roles in order to fulfill this commission. And those complementary roles come with distinct uh, orientations, distinct primary callings. And we see this in a lot of different ways in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And again, this is Alistair Roberts' uh, uh, article. is very helpful here. Uh, that Genesis 1 shows us this pattern in God's work of creation, that on the, on the first three days, God forms the world, and on the second three days, God essentially fills the world. The first three days are, devo are devoted to structuring, to division, to taming, and to naming, as Roberts puts it. And the second three days are days of generating, establishing, succession, filling, glorifying, establishing communion. So God forms the uh, structure in order and then fills that ordered structure with life. And these two halves of God's creative work are, are, are seemingly uh, fulfilled in the two key themes of creation mandate of dominion, having dominion, 
and filling the earth and subduing it. And humanity is called on to rule over creation, to give that creation order and structure so that things aren't just chaos, which is why whenever we see uh, in the Bible great sin amongst a culture, it's that of chaos, right? Think of Babel and God as punishment for their sin of, of working their way toward him. He, he, he leads them into, you know, confuses their languages and there's chaos that, that reigns. It's a judgment, in Genesis 1, you see that judgment of chaos in culture. And, uh, I mean, very rightly, I think we could say that the more our culture strays from God, the more we find ourselves in the midst of a chaotic world, ever-increasingly chaotic world, that is a, a sign of God's judgment upon our nation, upon our world. And, uh, and this is why it's so important to have something like the Bible to come back to uh, our source of, of peace and grounding in the midst of a chaotic world. But that's what we see God doing here. Dominion relates to those early days of creation, and humanity is to fill the earth by multiplying offspring. So we're to reflect, continue, and even extend God's own creative activity in Genesis 1. That's what God calls his people to do. And men and women do this in distinct ways. They don't do it exactly the same, but they do it together. Then when we turn to Genesis 2, we see that man and women, uh, men and women are created to fulfill this calling, and we're, and we're given their, the ways in which this calling is is, uh, is set out. So in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his, his name. So you see there's, there's dominion stuff going on here with the man. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit to him. So all these animals that he has dominion over, he doesn't, there is no one to be by his side. There is no helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he still names her. He gives her a name, Eve, and uh, this name, uh, the mother of all living, a woman, because she was taken out of man. So all these things are, are but he does, notice he does it differently. He recognizes the difference between the animals that he simply names and has dominion over, that he has a woman now that is flesh with his flesh, that they're connected, and yet she's different. He doesn't, he doesn't call her the same as himself. He's man. She's something else. She's woman. They're connected, they have a, 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 they're, they're similar, but they're, that they're distinct. And then we're told, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That, that marriage is to reflect this original created uh, creation story, that your marriage reflects that. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed because sin had not entered the world at this point. So a lot of details in this, in, in this story in Genesis 2 highlight this distinction and complementarian nature between the genders. Uh, verses 15 to 25 show us how man was created first. Verse 19, man is given authority to name the animals, ordering them just like God named and ordered the elements of creation in those first three days. The man is created to keep and guard the garden, and the woman is created to be his helper in this task. And the primary sense of verse 18, that it's not good that the man should be alone, is not that Adam would be lonely, but that he won't really be able to fulfill the creation mandate by himself. That only a man, man and a woman together can have children and can truly fulfill God's mandate. Verses 21 and 22 tell us that while the man was created from the dust, 
the woman was created with flesh and bone from the man's side. And in verse, um, back in verse 7, the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life there. Only after that did God plant a garden in Eden. So the man was created outside the garden and prior to its creation, while the woman was created within it. So the woman has a special relationship to the inner world of this garden. And the man has a special relationship to the earth outside the garden. The man is given the task of naming. The woman isn't. The man names the woman. The woman does not name the man. So this puts a, uh, uh, an order of uh, uh, responsibility within the marriage relationship even. And then you look down to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They plunge creation into ruin and misery. Adam fails in his task of serving and keeping the garden by upholding God's law, his instruction. And Eve fails in her calling as helper because she tempts her husband with the forbidden fruit rather than going to him and seeking his counsel. And both of them fail to seek God's counsel in the midst of this. And the parallel judgments that follow, verses 16 and 17, God tells both the man and woman that they will experience difficulty in the fundamental area of their activity. The man will be cursed in his work with the ground, in his labor, and the woman will be uh, cursed in the difficulty in childbearing or in her labor. Notice they both are given labor uh, tasks. One physical labor of working the ground and the woman her labor of giving birth. Both of those frustrated made more difficult and painful. And they will be, um, and they will be frustrated They will be frustrated in their relationship with the thing from which they came. The man will be frustrated by the ground from the dust from which he came. And the woman will be frustrated in her relationship um, with the man and her desires. So what do we see when we put all this together? Well, we see that in fulfilling God's plan for humanity, his mandates, men and women each have unique vocations and roles The man's vocation tends to correspond with those early days of creation, naming, taming, dividing, and ruling. And woman's primary vocation seems to fit with the the second three days of creation, filling, glorifying, generating, bringing forth new life. So the differences, says Roberts, the differences between us as men and women are not merely accidental or incidental, but they are integral to our purpose and they are deeply meaningful. They're they're built into the whole story of creation. And these distinct callings and the different physical and emotional equipment that God has given men and women in order to fulfill this are seen most clearly in having and raising kids, of course. It's the primary way we see these differences. And yet those distinct focal points of both men and women's callings aren't limits, but they're simply seeds that grow in lots of different ways. Man is not only a gardener. Women are not only mothers. But that's where we most clearly see them, at least in this early story. So then we have to do the task of, well, what does that mean for us now? Um, And in the perspective of the first three chapters of Genesis, to be a man is to be a potential father, brother, husband type person. And to be a woman is to be a potential mother, uh, wife, sister type person. Now, not all, men's will be fa- not all men will be fathers, not all women will be mothers, but in their callings, men and women exert fatherly and motherly influences for others. And whether, So whether you're married or single, whether you're childless or a parent, you have a commission from God to draw out the, the mandates of creation and to help others flourish 
as a man or a woman in your spheres of influence. That work is part of what it means to be truly human and to be made in the image of God. And who you are as a man or a woman will shape all that you do. So we're not talking so much, you see, about rules, specific rules, as simply being and accepting and, and, and glorying in who God made you to be and to make the most of the gifts and capacities that he's entrusted to you. So far from, you see, one of the lies of our modern culture is that by rejecting these, you know, what they would call antiquated ways of thinking about gender and roles and these types of things, that we're actually liberating people to be who they really are, right? And this, the, as we'll talk about next week, this is the promise of... Uh, transgenderism, right? That you get to be who you really are. And yet, notice, biblically, you're actually rejecting who you really are. And when you reject who you really are, whether it's by rejecting and fighting against your gender or your, your roles uh, or your uh, proclivities and, and not embracing yourself as male or female, what you're actually doing is dehumanizing yourself. You're pulling yourself farther and farther away from being made in the image of God. Because God did not make genderless human beings without, with, with generic roles that you can you know, do that. He created specific individuals, male and female. He created them and he gave them specific roles and tasks. And that that reflected what it meant to be made in God's image most fully. So to reject those things is actually to reject the image of God, the bearing of the image of God in our lives. And that uh, dehumanization, how can we not expect that to have serious you know, psychological impacts upon people. I think that's one of the reasons, probably the uh, you know, psychologists can't come up with it, but one of the main reasons why you know, depression and suicide among people who have undergone uh, transgender actual surgeries and therapies and stuff, years later, uh, years and years after, there might be a momentary acceptance and joy, but the rates of depression, serious depression and suicide go, they skyrocket for these folks you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so I'm very concerned because we have a culture that this is just becoming widely accepted. What's going to happen in 15, 20 years? And, and uh, why? And is it any surprise that with all this confusion regarding who we are and what the image of God in us means, having such a confused worldview has led to even rates of depression and suicide among young people that have gone up crazy in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. These things, are, I don't think, are just coincidences that they've happened at the same time. It's because we're rejecting the very image of God in us, and by doing so, we are dehumanizing ourselves as a culture. So those are some theological foundations that we have to think about in terms of all of this. But then we can make some observational conclusions, right? Sort of, if you think of point one as being, what does special revelation teach us about all these things? What does the Bible tell us about these things? We can make some observations from general revelation just by kind of looking around and we can make some conclusions. And so this is, a, what I'm about to say now is sort of a mixture of common sense observation and, uh, and some anthropology and sociology, I guess, that would, that would be out there. Just But these aren't, uh, uh, you know, big studies that we've done. They're just things we can notice about people anthropology, and about society, sociology. And the first thing is, again, it's crazy that this is a cult, that this sentence I'm going to say right now is so cross-cultural and so antithetical to our worldview thinking and might get me canceled on Twitter, I don't know. But here's this bold statement I'm going to make for you. Men and women are different. Shocking news to you this morning, I know, 
if you feel you need a safe space, you can go to the kitchen and find something, right? But, is, but that is a radical idea almost nowadays, right? That men and women, now, men and women are physically different in terms of both primary and secondary characteristics. Everything from the very specific parts of their bodies that are different, but also things like average height, average weight, average physical strength, and, go, and the list goes on and on and on, right? This has been pointed out in some interesting talks that I've heard that, say, in a thousand years, they dig up a body, they exhume a body from a grave, and all that's left are the bones. They're going to look at that body and say, what about it? They could make some conclusions about whether that body is male or female, largely because of what the hips look like. That's the first thing they look like, is the, 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 the structure of the hips. Because some people, it seems, some humans, are designed in order to have children, so they have hips that are designed in that way. And other people are somehow designed not to have children. So, wow, there must have been a difference in those people back then. And so there's just very clear biological, uh, obvious things that are different. Not to mention all of the, the things that are uh, trends of, of the different genders. Things like average height and physical strength and so forth. And some of these differences account for... Why, in traditional societies throughout the world and throughout history, work that demanded more strength had been universally assigned to men. This should not surprise us. This is not because of the patriarchy. This is because, simply, if you need to lift something heavy, 99 out of 100 of the people that you're going to want to help you lift something heavy are going to be men. It's not sexist. That's just the reality of it back uh, in the history of the world until very recently. But men and women also have profound differences of psychology and personality that is sort of observationally undeniable, right? You don't have, it doesn't take long when you play with little kids to see this. After church, you're going to watch. There are little girls who are going to go uh, befriend my little nephew Trip because he's a baby and they're going to want to play with him. No one had to teach them to do that. And little boys are going to be doing what? They're going to be knocking each other over in the running room, right? Now, that doesn't mean that it's 100%. Sometimes, yes, the girls are going to love to go and run around. But sometimes it gets too rough for them and they leave. And not that boys don't sometimes enjoy playing house. Um, but we're talking about, in general, there are, there are these ways that God has made us that are observationally pretty clear. There are overlaps, but the differences are profound. Now... Again, we're talking in generalization trends and averages here, not absolutes, but there are a number of characteristic differences between men and women's psychologies that have been observed. And, uh, and that is that men tend to be more analytical and compartmentalized in their thinking. Probably God did this because it helps them focus on tasks that need to be done. While women tend to experience situations and to relate to people with the whole person more than men tend to. A man is more likely to isolate a problem and seek to fix it. I remember talking to, to Laurel not long ago. She was talking about their, their trailer, and uh, if there's a problem, she goes, I don't worry about it because I know Nevin is going to figure it out. He's going to get to the bottom of it. He'll research it. He'll think about it, and they will, he will figure it out. He'll figure out a way. That's this you know, engineering mind that he has in particular, but that's kind of a male trait, tends to be more of a male trait, um, where she's experiencing the situation of, what are we going to do? Our trailer's going to fly off the road. We're all going to die. Right? Okay? But 
you want to create a home. You want to have an environment of, of a home and, and uh, nurturing, and, and that's where uh, Neva needs her help to help in those areas. Um, this is often true in relationships, right? Husbands and wives, you can relate to this when there's a disagreement uh, between the two of you. Often, men will want to fix the problem. And the woman will say, I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to listen to me. Right? Why is that, so, why is that funny? It's because it's common, right? It's because men are fixers. Let's isolate the problem and fix it. And women are relational more you know, on the average than men. So they want to talk through it, express their feelings. They're like, I don't need to be to fix. I just need some time, right? These things, though, yes, they are generalizations, and not every man and every woman is exactly the same. Uh, this tends to be the way it's like. Men te- tend to be more oriented toward abstract goals, and women tend to be more oriented toward others' personal needs. Men tend to be more aggressive and that's not, by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We need aggressiveness as a, as a trait in men to be able to be bold and to go after things, to attack problems head on. There's a, there's a need for that, right? And not, not just in the sense of like warfare and that sort of thing, although clearly we need it there. But women tend to be more nurturing. Again, an individual woman may be more aggressive than some men, and an individual man may be more nurturing than some women. But when you take each gender as a whole, men have vastly higher aggression levels and women vastly higher nurturing levels in total. Those are just a few things. And those are things we don't need modern psychology to tell us. Those are just kind of observations that we make, and we know that they're true because we laugh at them when when they're pointed out. But it does provide a baseline for us. And the the point here of discerning these differences is not to create a mold that you have to force your personality into. The point is to discern the widespread characteristic differences between men and women so that you are free to be who you are. And when we map these traits onto the distinct tasks that God has given men and women in fulfilling his mandates, we see that they fit. God has called men to distinct vocations of forming and tasks and he has fitted them to be able to do that. He's, made them, he's given them the, the mandate to work, and he's given them bodies that are able to do so. God has called women to distinct vocations of filling and has fitted them for the task and given them bodies and, and orientations for that task. And those distinct callings are most evident, as we talked about, in the raising of a family, but they can be manifested in countless ways, regardless of the context. So how do we connect these roles given in creation, those theological underpinnings, bolstered by our even observational conclusions that we make about men and women, how do we connect those to our roles in the modern workplace? So these are our modern society considerations. Well, the society we live in today, in the modern West, is the result of hundreds of years of shifts in technology, production, relationships, on and on and on. Countless facts of life that we take for granted are radically different from both the remote history and from other societies throughout the world. And the, the easiest way I know to, to talk about this cultural shift is to say that our entire society is technological in nature now, right? Advances of technology. Some of you, especially who are older, think about the technology shift that you've seen in your lifetime, right? Astounding, astounding stuff. Um, you know, it's like the technology in your phone is like, I don't it's like a thousand times more powerful than 
the computers that put the space shuttle on the moon. And they're here, right? Any of you ever had to solder like transistors in, uh, back in the day? And little transistors and stuff. Uh, I remember being in uh, tech ed in junior high and soldering transistors on motherboards and stuff. And those transistors, you know, were like this big. But then you go back and look at uh, ancient technology. I remember going on a, there's a submarine in the Cleveland on the, uh, an old World War II submarine in Cleveland on the, um, on the lake there, Lake Erie or whatever it is. And uh, you can go in it and, you know, you see just how tight it was. But then I remember going into the control room and they had just exposed basically motherboards, but they're the size of the wall right in that room. And the transistors, they weren't the ones that I did on a motherboard, a CPU motherboard in junior high. These transistors are like this big. <laughs> now you have like billions of transistors that only a computer prints. The machine prints them because they're so tiny on, on the motherboards on your phones. They, they don't stick up and you can't solder them yourself in the same way. Some of them are, are still bigger, but most of them are microscopic. And, you know, technological advances are insane. But that's, that's in computers, but just in other things, you know. Machines and, and uh, you know, the way that we... Uh, the way you used to mow your yard in the 1920s versus the way we mow our yards today, completely different. Um, every machine has gone through revolutionary changes, except for the toaster. I don't know, that thing still, it still hot wires inside a metal box. Somehow it's the only device that has not changed. But think about this. All the major institutions, all the major customs of our society have been shaped by modes of production and consumption that depend on engineered techniques and modern functional efficiency. We tell time by hours and seconds, not by the sun or the rhythms of nature. Our education is geared more toward training and credentialing, not the passing of accumulated wisdom on to future generations. Where we live is increasingly governed by what work we want to do and what work is available rather than the traditional ties to place and family. We increasingly live alone or with nuclear families rather than in extended um, kinship networks. Work itself has been radically transformed. The brunt of much, though not all, physical labor is now borne by machines and increasingly by robotics, not by human beings. And therefore, it is only possible, really, even in our relatively recent modern era for the differences between men and women in the workplace to begin to be erased. It would have been actually physically impossible for this to happen 100 years ago. A lot of work is done virtually with no physical effort at all, typing on computers so that we run into issues not of having broken backs but of carpal tunnel. It's the most common workplace injury in, in the United States. What we conceive of as work at all is almost entirely that of giving our time and skills to an employer in a functional relationship governed by a, an employment contract. Work is typically done at the employer's household called the office rather than working in your home at a trade and then bartering that trade with someone else. I raise eggs, you want eggs, you make you know, you do stuff with iron, and so I trade you eggs for iron. Uh, or you do that with money. All this stuff happens. 
Men and women work side by side as individual, interchangeable producers with gender distinctions functionally erased in most modern jobs. And there are very few jobs in the modern world that whether by necessity, law, or custom could only be done by men or women. Now, some lines of work are predominantly done by men or women, but in many workplaces, men and women are virtually interchangeable, and that's by design. In a word, the entire structure of society prioritizes productivity over relationships. It evaluates people strictly based on what they can achieve. And so the world we live in is radically different from the world in which both the Old and New Testaments were written. So here's a principle to try to apply biblical teaching to our roles in the workplace. And that is this, that the complementary gifts and distinct tasks that God has given men and women are most visible and pronounced in marriage and child rearing. That's where we see them the most. We're not going to see them as much in our culture because of the individual, technological, functional nature of most modern work. The differences between men and women are less relevant and less observable. The different capacities and traits that men and women bring to those roles will be expressed in much more subtle ways. So, this again means we have to look for God's wisdom more than rules because your goal is to be who you are. Your goal is to use the distinctively male or female characteristics, the distinctively masculine or feminine traits that God has given you as tools for loving your neighbor and uh, working out uh, your life and culture in that way. And this is why I think all these things put together, you can see why gender confusion is at an all-time high in our society. And so it behooves us as believers, then, to sort of refocus ourselves on identifying what makes us distinctly male and female. And that's going to primarily be seen in the home and the church, and therefore, we are naturally going to rub up against a culture most clearly in the terms of the home and the church. We're going to look antithetical to the world more and more because the differences that existed just observably in culture are going away more and more. Now, all that to say, not all of that is bad in the culture, um, that there are more choices for, for work options, that physical limitations don't have to hold people back from pursuing jobs, but it does mean then when there are clear reasons for gender differences to be expressed, when there are clear places where we have to say, no, men and women are different, that we as as believers, need to fight for those. Otherwise, we lose those theological distinctions. And um, we're going to be at odds with our culture. We're just going to have to accept that, that we're at odds with our culture in these ways. So then how do we... So those are the our modern society kind of conclusions we come to. How do we then apply the biblical kind of framework that we've been just talking about the last several weeks and apply those to this weird modern culture in which we live that is so different than any culture that has existed, you know, more than 100 years ago. Well, here are some biblical applications that I just want to give you. And again, not rules, but just, and hopefully you will think about these as we interact with culture. The first is, resist the denial of gender differences. Or what I first wrote, but I thought it was a little harsh, was deny, resist the denial of reality. Maybe you put that in there, but you write it so I didn't type it, <laughs> right? But it's so true, right? Our, just our world is in complete denial of reality. Gender is real. Gender differences are real. 
our culture is engaged in a collective effort to deny the absolute reality of the world in which we live. But to be a man or a woman is something objective. It is given. It is not chosen. It is not malleable. Being a woman or a man is not something you can or should seek to change. And efforts to do so amount to a self-sabotaging mutilation and denial of the image of God in a person. And so while this is both tragic, sometimes tragically funny and sad, it is really, really sad. It is an evidence of God's judgment over sin in the world that is creeping into uh, our very neighbors' houses and our own families, uh, who are people really struggling with these things. They may not realize this is what they're doing, but this is what they're doing. So instead of denying the reality of gender, we as Christians ought to be the very first to celebrate the goodness of gender differences, to thank God for the gift of gender, to view our differences as men and women, not so much as differences from each other, but differences that exist for one another. Just as in the church we have different gifts and the body needs all of them, so also in relating to one another as men and women in culture, our different gifts and capacities are actually assets for the community. So we should be alert to how those gender differences influence the day-to-day lives of our workplaces. Be aware. Think about them this week. Notice them. Second, resist the reduction of value to mere money. Because that's a lot of what's at a part of, of our workplaces today. Our culture puts a price tag on everything. But what's the value of motherhood? What's the cost of not knowing your father? There's a sociologist named William Cameron. He says, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And that is absolutely true. How much money we make is not the measure of our worth as an individual, as a company, as a society. How much you earn over your career is not the measure of whether you've spent your life well. Scripture teaches us to value God's glory above everything else, to value loving and serving one another, to value seemingly weak and insignificant members of the body of Christ, to value children and to value their training and nurture in the Lord, to value the local and global progress of the gospel. Are those things that we think about? Because none of those things will get you a paycheck or a raise. And often, in different ways, our jobs can compete with those values. And we have to be careful that we don't allow them to. How does this apply to gender? Well, depending on your circumstances, you may have other gender-specific callings that exist in tension with the demands of your workplace. It may be that those are tensions you can't completely escape or resolve. For instance, very many working moms live with tension between their calling as mothers and the responsibility of their children. Only if you value what the world doesn't teach you to value can you be faithful to both of those callings. But it's by focusing on both of them. Generally speaking, your job will not teach you to value your children. Your boss is not necessarily invested in you being a faithful mother or father. You will have to train your heart to rightly prize the calling that God has given you as a husband, as a father, and fight for those within your job. Make those priorities, even if it means not getting a promotion, even if it means not getting that raise, not being number one on the call sheet or whatever uh, the equivalent of that is. Do you think about how those things are in conflict? And do you recognize where those things are in conflict as men or women in your workplace? 
Third, recognize that there are differences in the way men and women function in the modern workplace as compared to the household and the life of the church. This is an observation that kind of goes in two directions. The first is that we, we shouldn't expect the modern workplace to mirror or embody the biblical teachings on gender. It's simply not going to happen. Scripture teaches that men and women are not interchangeable in the home and in the church, but in the modern workplace there is a striking extent to which men and women are interchangeable. Again, that's the reality of our modern technology. But this also means, as I said, that we should expect the church and the household to look and feel different from the world. We should be careful not to import worldly assumptions into the church, import worldly assumptions into the household, which is why I think it's actually becoming more and more important to reject the kind of corporate model that exists in the world as a way of managing the church because that is actually denying um, God's biblical wisdom and simply trying to import a very functionally different society into the life of the church. We should cultivate distinct callings as men and women in the church and in our households in ways that our gender-neutral workplaces often hinder. So fight for those things at home. Make your home distinct. Make, your, make our churches distinct from the world. Fourth, embrace your genders as a gift from God. See it as, as an asset for serving others. If you're a male nurse, we'll pray for God to equip you to nurture and care for others well and look for ways to use your strength and masculine personality traits. It doesn't matter what the job is. If you're a female uh, corporate executive, you pray for God to equip you to lead boldly and look for ways to use your motherly capacities that God has given you to help your employees flourish. But regardless of whether you're in a traditionally, um, a, a job that traditionally matches your gender or if you're in a job that, that doesn't traditionally match that, you want to serve, again, even though our world will see you as interchangeable cogs, men and women, you should seek to do your job to the best of your ability as a man or a woman that God has created you to be. And fifth, embrace goals, life goals, that support and fit with the callings that you either have or desire. Embrace life goals that are fit with that. So if you're married, as we saw in Genesis 2 and 3, God has given men and women these complementary callings to fulfill the cultural mandates. In marriage, husbands are going to be primarily oriented toward the task of providing for the family, and wives are going to be primarily oriented toward nurturing and caring for the family, which means that even if both husbands and wives work outside the home, their goals are different. A husband's work outside the home prioritizes his objective ability to provide, and a wife, and especially a mother who works outside the home, should prioritize a kind of flexibility that allows her to invest more intensively in the nurturing of her children and managing her household. What if you're not married? What does this have to do with you? Well, statistically speaking, a lot of you are going to get married. So the potential of future marriage should impact your goals in the workplace today. Quite counterculturally, I'll go so far as to say that because career goals are different for husbands and wives, simply because they are husbands and wives, career goals will be different for single men and single women uh, if they have the desire and the potential one day to become husbands and wives. So for single men, you're building a career focused on your ability to provide. Right now that means providing for yourself and to be generous to others. Those are two goals for employment that Paul gives in Ephesians 4.28, by the way. Probably, maybe someday, if, 
you so desire, that means that you will provide for a family. Ideally, plan so that you can live as much as possible on your own income should you and your wife decide that's what you want or should circumstances force that upon you. Have those as goals in mind if you desire to be married. For single women, you're actually in a little bit more challenging of a position because just like your single brothers in Christ, your career is focused on provision now. Feed yourself and be generous, Ephesians 4.28 again. But should you get married, your career goals are going to change in a way that your husbands won't. He was focused on provision before marriage. He'll still be focused on provision after marriage. But once a single woman gets married, their career goals are going to shift because their orientation changes to a sole provider, to that of a, of a helper and eventually a mother. And very practically, all Christian husbands and wives welcome the gift of children, typically having a more significant effect on the work a wife does within the home. Mothers have a unique and uniquely demanding role in caring for kids, especially younger kids, and they should honor and uphold that calling and how they view work outside the home. Practically speaking, this might frequently, though not always, mean reducing the work done outside the home in order to care well for kids. So this means that for you, flexibility is going to be a major goal in career planning. The flexibility so that if you're married or you might have the option to work part-time or work from home if you choose, consider jobs that have that type of potential so that you can change careers or even drop out of the workplace for a time or forever if that's your choice to make you more wary of taking on large student loans or pursuing careers with long-term commitments. For both single men and single women, focusing on building a, a marketable skill that would go a long way to pursuing those goals is important. A skill set that the marketplace values so you can provide in a, in a competitive job market. A skill set that the marketplace values can help you get the flexibility you want if the time comes. That's why it's important to be good at your job because your employer will be more likely to be flexible with you if you're good at what you do. Now, does it seem inherently unfair that Christian men and women pursue careers differently? Well, if you're evaluating a career in the currency that the world uses, money, power, and impact, it can feel unfair. But Jesus' goals aren't the world's goals. So whether you're a man or a woman, single or married, your main goal is not money, power, or impact, because Jesus has that already covered. He doesn't need you for that. His goal is so that your work might show off his work in you. That it might bring glory to him. And we have to keep that in mind or else the impact of gender in the workplace is going to be a continued struggle. This isn't all the things that we would think through, but I hope at least you see that, that maybe thinking through how, our, how God has created us as male and female has a lot of implications that, you've pro that you probably never sat down down for a while to think about or talk to your kids about, uh, but I hope that you will. If you could sum up the message of this, it would be, be who you are, not though the way the world says be who you are. Be who you are, meaning be who God has made you as a man or a woman with distinct callings and orientations and gifts. And even though masculine and masculinity and femininity will look different for different people, there is going to be a general posture of protection and provision for men and a posture of helping and nurturing for women. And don't run away from those. And think about how that will affect your careers. Now, if you're asking the question about, we've already talked a bit a few weeks ago and even today about should women work, in the work, work outside the home? And the answer is they certainly can. 
but we should do so with thought and care. The same would be true if you're asking about things like political leadership or those types of things. Lots of Christians talk about, you know, should, should uh, you know, we elect women to serve in Congress or president. And the Bible doesn't say anything about those things, so certainly women are uh, certainly allowed, and there's nothing wrong with them to do so insofar as how does that affect their other relationships? How does that affect their other biblical commitments, higher commitments than simply being a CEO? And then this would be a big difficulty for a woman in a role like a president or a CEO of a major corporation that they probably face in that. What does that mean for her to be leader in one sphere and yet not in another sphere if she's married? How does she balance a commitment to running a Fortune 500 company with the balance of raising kids? And this is why they have found... There was a while in, uh, in Sweden, in the Scandinavia, because this is where they try everything out up there, right? And they're the most progressive in terms of these things. And in Sweden, for example, they had a mandate for having absolute equity in the sciences and in medical fields and all the, the kind of the STEM fields that generally women were underrepresented in. And they would actually kind of push women with, with, with good aptitudes in those areas into career fields that may, may not have normally chosen for themselves. They were really pushing women into those fields. And, so, and, they, and they did it. They succeeded. They got parity. They got parity in the workplace. Just about 50-50 parity in almost all fields of work. And you know what they found? People weren't happy. So they ended that experiment just about five years ago. This mandated, these pushes, they've changed what they're doing. They now simply, and this is a wild thing, they let people choose what they want to do. Wild in a free society. And you know what they found? Uh, there aren't as women, many women in certain fields, and there aren't as many men in certain fields. It's as if men and women are different. And that anything our society does to try to force us not to be different is not good for us flourishing. And so this is where we come to Colossians 3. That Nevin read for us. He talked about wives and husbands and children and fathers and masters and servants, slaves. And he talked about all their different differences. The different challenges they face. The, the, the commands that he needs to give to them. But what does he say in verse 23? Ultimately. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And that's essentially the message this morning, isn't it? Don't do what you do for the applause of the world. Don't buy into their values or their descriptions of who you are, but work for the Lord. Seek to glorify Him with your work, whatever that is. For you are serving the Lord Christ and it is from the Lord you will receive your, the inheritance as your reward. What are you focused on? Are you leaning into who God has created you and made you to be? And are you leaning into and embracing the differences that exist and how those things may cause you to choose different careers or, or, or work in your career field differently? Or are you simply buying into, yeah, let's go with the world's way of doing things? Well... Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard. Work and do your best as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Remember that in your home, in the church, and even in the world, even though it looks a lot different than the world of the first century in which Paul was writing.
let's uh, pray for us to look for those opportunities and the jobs we select and in how we do our jobs. Let's pray. Father, a difficult task this morning in trying to make a biblical application in a world and a context that is so different from when the Bible was written, and yet the principles that are in the Bible, uh, Father, if we do the hard work of thinking through them, we can see how our world is rejecting them and to its own detriment, and how we as Christians uh, need to be those who seek to reclaim those things. Father, we're thankful for great technological advances that have made a lot of our work easier. And we're grateful that there are opportunities uh, for men and women to do jobs maybe that they wouldn't have been able to do a hundred years ago or further, or further back. We're thankful for the, the, the freedom and, and some of the changes that have been made because they've not all been for the bad in, in uh, you know, women having the right to vote and, and uh, things like this that have come about. There have been great advances and good things that have come out of modern society and yet with those is a mixed bag of a lot of rejection of who you have made us to be, a rejection of your truth and of your ways that has not been for our culture's benefit. And so help us in our way to not just react against culture in a mean and oppressive way, but help us to see how we ought to live according to your word for your glory in the culture in which we live. And to remember that our main jobs aren't to change the culture around us necessarily, but is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to give you glory, and as you change hearts, the culture will change. So the hope for our society, the hope for our culture, the hope for our cities, the hope for our communities is not in anything other than that the gospel would penetrate the hearts of unbelievers and that your Holy Spirit would draw them to your Son. So we pray that you would do that in our midst even this morning, that you would draw us who are your children even closer to you today to embrace the roles and differences that you have created in us that ultimately together work to reflect your glory and your image in us as your people. So help us to think through this in our individual contexts, individual families, individual relationships in a way that would glorify your name. For we thank you for those differences. We glory in those wonderful differences, even as we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.